Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Let's take this outside with Marianne Iveson, the podcast where she speaks to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about why they connect with nature. Christine Yu is an award-winning journalist who loves telling stories about the intersection of sports science and women athletes and wrote Up to Speed, the groundbreaking science of women athletes, which was released in spring of this year. Her reported features, profiles, and essays have appeared in the Washington Post, Outside Magazine, Runner's World, Family Circles, Self, Eating Well, uh, just to name a few. She earned her BA in art history from Columbia University and her Master's of Public Policy from the Harvard Kennedy School at Harvard University. She lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband and two sons. She's a lifelong athlete who loves to run, practice yoga, hike, swim, and surf. Please welcome Christine Yu. Christine Yu, thank you for joining Let's Take This Outside. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You're in Brooklyn, New York. I'm in Ottawa, Ontario. And it's funny because we're both experiencing the the smoke and the fire because we're recording in, in mid-June. We're both experiencing like the same fire smoke despite being hundreds of kilometers and miles away from each other. Yeah, it's pretty wild. We were just talking about how like everything is really brown and hazy outside and smells like campfire. Not the not the campfire that you want, which we probably both enjoy in nature. So Yes, exactly. Um so we met on on Twitter, I guess you could say, because I I came across your book up to speed and your content and instantly thought, okay, I need to I need to speak to this woman. How many people have just reached out to you be like, "Oh my gosh, this is something that that I want to chat about. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been quite a few, which is great. Like, it's fantastic that people are interested in talking more about female athlete health and you know women athletes in general. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. Kind of, it, it expands my network of folks <laughs> for sure. Right. So, you know, I do want to talk about the book, but I would love to know more about you because you're the one you're the one who wrote this, but where does your love of exercise and where does nature play into that exercise? Is it like from a kid? What does your life look like now that, you know, you live in the city? Like where does nature play into your life? So I grew up in Connecticut and my parents were immigrants to this country. They were not sporty at all, but for some reason, me and my brother and my sister all kind of picked up sports in school. And I like I'm trying to think back and I think like at least for me part of it was that I had to, <laughs> I had to do it. Like it was part of what we were supposed to do in school. Like you played field hockey after school, you know, with the team. And so in a way I think that was good because I didn't really have a choice, but I ended up just liking it in the sense that I got to hang out with friends and, you know, got to play in a team and I was learning a new thing and oh, it was kind of cool. So being active in that way has always been kind of part of my life. You know, we had a backyard pool. So, I mean, water and swimming has also been kind of a big piece of it. That's that's always, I think, my first memories, right, of really being active in any sort of way, which is like swimming in the backyard pool, forgetting how to swim every summer, making my dad teach me again how to swim. And I'm like, I can't remember. And he's like, you're just like, what are you doing? So it's like, those are like kind of key memories. We didn't, you know, outside 
of, you know, just spending time in the backyard, we didn't spend much time in the outdoors, right? We never went hiking or camping or anything like that when I was younger. I think my first, at least like most important, I think, exposure to it was in high school. I did a summer program out in Montana. It was like a community service kind of program. But as part of it, we did a backpacking trip. And that was the first time I've ever been backpacking. It was phenomenal. It was like, you know, such an important experience, I think, for me, like in the sense of like, we are carrying everything we need on our backs and we're going to survive out there for a couple of days. And I was like, wow, it just felt very empowering. I mean, aside from the fact that it was just gorgeous country, we were, you know, traversing. Where were you in Montana? We were on, so kind of near the Crow Reservation, near like Northern Cheyenne uh, Reservation, near where Custer's like last stand battlefield is. And we actually went where we went backpacking was in Wyoming. And I'm going to like, I totally don't remember where, but it was like somewhere near like Sheridan, Wyoming around there. But yeah, it was gorgeous. So your first real experience was with backpacking. You remember loving it, like now looking back, but do you remember any part of you were like, oh, I'm so out of my comfort zone. Like, do you remember how old you were at that at that point? I I was probably 16 or 17. I don't recall feeling like entirely out of my comfort zone in the sense that I had this group of peers around me, plus counselors, right? Who were supposed to take care of us and make sure like we didn't get hurt and and all of these things. So it felt like a very safe space to explore this new environment. I will say actually the only other kind of outdoors experience that I really had growing up is actually my family skied a lot. We would go up to Vermont a lot um, in the winters and go ski. And so I was used to being in kind of mountain environment, I guess. Right. Um, So that wasn't entirely foreign to me, but skiing at a resort is very different from backpacking too. And what is your, what does exercise look like now for you? I know for sure that you're a runner, but what else, what else do you enjoy and is outside a big part of that spending time in nature? Yeah. So definitely, you know, running is a big part of it. My family, you know, ourselves, we still ski, we go hiking when we can. Like, surf a little bit, mostly when I have access to warmer water, (laughs) warm water, because I'm a little bit of a wimp when it comes to cold water. But, you know, surf when I can and kind of be outside. But I found that being outside or at least having access to the outdoors and, you know, whether that's kind of ocean or mountains is an important piece of what I need in my life, which has been hard living in New York City. I came here for college. So in 1995. So almost 30 years, like, which is kind of like crazy. And so when I moved here, my family had moved out to California at that time. So when I moved here, it was very foreign, right? I was like, everything is covered in concrete. Where are the trees? What is going on? Why am I here? <laughs> and I'm moving back to California as soon as I graduate, which of course didn't happen. But as I've gotten older, as I've had kids too, it's I've realized that that piece and that access to nature, access to the outdoors is a very important piece and something that, you know, we've been trying to navigate more, whether that means like taking weekend trips, you know, with with the family or, you know, even thinking about, you know, maybe it is time to leave New York because I want easier access to be able to do the activities that I love. Give me like a couple places that you would move to when it comes to access to nature, but also amenities that you that you enjoy. So California is kind of you know, the default 
largely because my family is still there. So San Francisco Bay Area, my family's still there. I have still have a lot of friends in the area. So it, it feels like an easy place to kind of pick up and go and start living, right? Like the the ramp up time is a little bit less. And so, right, that that makes it easy to get to some trails, get up to Tahoe. Although I feel like every time we try to, we drive up to Tahoe, we're stuck in some ridiculous traffic situation. But, um, <laughs> that ruins it. I know. <laughs> um, but that's kind of like initially like where we were thinking, but also, you know, kind of thinking about maybe San Diego or something like that. I feel like the access to surfable beach is part of the equation because my husband is a surfer, so he would like to be able to do that more frequently. So that kind of limits some of the some of the places that we're looking at. I feel like have you have you ever been to Tofino in uh, in BC? I haven't. Everyone keeps telling me I need to go. I feel like if you're, I'm not a surfer at all. I'm not really a water person, but like it's, I've been in Tofino and it's absolutely beautiful and BC is, is amazing, but I'll just, I'll just throw that out there. Yeah, no, that's definitely, that's on my list of places. Like I'd love to visit. You've written for Outside Magazine, Runner's World, The Washington Post. Where did journalism come into play and where did that passion for writing about sport, women's sport, where did that come from? It's funny because journalism wasn't something I ever thought I would do or being a writer of any sort was not on my radar at all. So I actually came to it pretty late. I've only been in journalism for probably about 10 years. So I got my master's in public policy, had a whole other career in the nonprofit sector before I kind of switched to writing. And it was also kind of a little bit of a fluke. I had started learning to surf and had started writing a blog, kind of documenting some of that and then talking about running and fitness and all of this other stuff. But I realized at that point that, oh, I could blend my interest and passion in sports and fitness because that's something that I always had an interest for, but never really thought of as like a career path, right? Something that I could actually make a living at with this interest in writing, plus my interest in science. So science and kind of the physiology has always been something that I've been acutely curious about. And it was, yeah, it was just this realization. I was like, oh, wait, maybe I could kind of do something here. And it was a lot of luck and happenstance, I think, that kind of got me to where I am now. Up to Speed, the book you just released in May, correct? Mm-hmm. Was inspired, I listened to you on another podcast, was inspired by some injuries that you were noticing. Yes. Let's dig into like the female part of this and the why you wrote Up to Speed. Where does that all begin? Yeah, so a big part of it came out of my reporting for you know outlets like Outside and Washington Post and Runner's World and talking to a lot of these elite athletes as well as experts in the field, right? Because I would often be writing about some specific either conditions or like sports performance related to women athletes. And, you know, every once in a while, someone would mention the fact that like, oh, we actually don't know that much about female physiology. Or, you know, we actually don't study women that much. Kind of as like an aside or like a throwaway comment. Yeah. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean by that? And this was probably, you know, it's like 2017, 2018. So not very long ago. What? Yeah. Like, right? Like this is kind of bananas. And so I was like, I don't understand how that's possible or, or what, like, what do you mean? And so it kind of became this rabbit hole that I started in on to try to understand why don't we study 
women as much? And more importantly, what are the implications for girls and women in sport if we aren't studying them, right? Like what are the differences? What could that potentially mean for their, you know, athletic performance, for their long-term health, injury, and all of these things? So that was like kind of happening on this one side. And then personally, I <laughs> I'm very injury prone and in same girl. Same. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in, in part, I think it's because, you know, I tore my ACL and my right knee in college skiing. So it was pretty early on. So like I kind of expected running and stuff. Sure, I might have some knee pain or something like that. But the injuries that I tended to have were like, or like the big injuries, at least they weren't like overuse injuries or like kind of typical things that happen. So it would be, you know, yes, I tore my ACL skiing. But then several years later, I retore the ACL in that knee while I was doing intervals at the track. And who tears their ACL while they're running at the track? Like apparently not a controlled in a controlled environment. Yeah. I'm like apparently yeah. me. <laughs> and then a couple of years before that, I dislocated my left shoulder swimming while I was training for a triathlon. Again, I was in a pool. Swimming is low impact. <laughs> How does one dislocate? your shoulder when you're just, you know, you're coming through in a stroke and just, you know, it, it was literally almost like I just pulled too far forward, you know, in my arm trying to reach forward and my shoulder just popped out of the socket. Like it was like kind of weird things like that where I was like, maybe there's something, you know, there's something wrong with my body that it's not fit for sport, right? Or like it's not suited for these types of things. I didn't like that feeling, right? Because moving my body is such an important part of me as a person and kind of how I live my life and the things that I enjoy doing. I was like, I don't, I don't want to accept that. Like that doesn't feel right to me, but it kind of dovetailed with, again, these stories that, that I would hear from other women or athletes that kind of echoed this similar sentiment that there was something wrong or not right with their bodies within the sporting environment, or they were made to feel like, you know, something was wrong, whether it was like they weren't lean enough to, to run, right? Like to be a runner because they didn't have the typical runner's body. Or, you know, again, it would be maybe an injury thing or like because their hips are too wide, that so it puts too much stress on your knees. That's why you're injured. Like there were all these like explanations that seemed to blame girls and women for the injuries that they had. And the blame was put squarely on like a female's body. Right. And we don't have issues with our bodies. Right. That's well, it, th that and plus, like, what can you do with that? Like, I can't, I can't really adjust the width of my hips or like my Q angle. Like, those are, or, or like my hormones. Right. Like, those are things that are just my body. Right. So it was kind of the, the confluence of those two different things that led to this idea of really trying to, okay, like let's dig deeper here because there's got to be a larger story underlying all of this. So between that experience for yourself and what you were hearing from women and these experiences, you're like, I have to write about this. And then you're like, I guess I'm going to write an entire book <laughs> on this. But, but clearly you have had enough experiences and heard enough that, and written enough articles that you felt confident that this is a book that was really important to put out in 2023. Yeah, it was definitely, well, I should also give my agent a lot of credit because she kept encouraging me. She's like, I think there's a book here. I was like, I don't want to write a book. She's like, I think there's a book here. I'm like, I don't want to write a book. <laughs> like, did, she, 
Did you stubbornly write up to speed? Is that what <laughs> um, a little bit? Like I stubbornly wrote the proposal for it. So for nonfiction books, you sell a book on proposal, which is essentially you write an overview and marketing plan and provide some like comparable titles and you know, some sample chapters and stuff. So I I very stubbornly wrote that. And I was like, whatever, fine. Like, we'll see what happens here. And she's like, it's gonna sell like it's, you know, there's a lot of people who want to read about this. And there's a lot of interest in this. And I was like, Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, 4Kids Flashback. 4Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Let's take this outside. Now has a newsletter. Keep up to date with outdoor news events and great discount codes and deals from our partners sign up today at let's take this outside.ca i do want to talk about female hormones but the phrase science has ignored females in research when it comes to sport is it fair to say that as boldly as i just did and what have you discovered and what have we what has the science community discovered about only men being researched and how it has affected women in sport Yeah, I mean, I do think it's a fair assessment of the current state because there have been studies recently that have gone back and and assessed the number of studies that have been published in sports sports science journals, you know, that focus on men, that focus on women, that look at, that break down the gender of the participants. And so for studies between 2014 and 2020, only 6% of those studies focus specifically on women. And women only make up about, uh, I think it's 34% of study participants, right? And so this is 2020. This isn't very long ago. And so it means like it's a very small, you know, portion of those studies that really kind of, one, include women at all as participants, and two, are studying women specifically. And so what happens is that when we have these studies, and so the vast majority, right, are using male participants or, you know, it's kind of earlier down the chain that they're using like male animals, male cells, you are making a lot of assumptions or like you're drawing conclusions based on those studies. And then what we do is we take those conclusions and then we apply it broadly across the whole population, 
right? So we'll take findings from, you know, studies based on just men, but we will apply them to all humans, right? And saying, yeah, of course, this is what happens. <laughs> but you're applying those findings or making those assumptions about how bodies adapt to training, how they perform, how they get injured, how they recover from injury, all these different things based on a partial picture of the human population. And so it creates what's called a sampling bias, right? So when you're only studying a certain portion of the population, it can skew what's considered normal physiology, right? Because you're only looking at a small sliver of the population. So that then means that the, you know, training and nutrition guidelines that we have, the injury prevention protocols, and even like clothing and gear is obviously going to be more suited to men and male athletes, right? And their experience, because it's based on research on them. But those same things are assumed to work for women, but they don't necessarily, they they may work, right? In certain instances, it might be fine. But the fact is, is like, we don't actually know, right? Because it's not based on women's lived experience. It's not based on their like physiology, biology, anatomy, all of those things. And so it's almost, it's, it's that thing of like, you know, square peg round hole. You're trying to like fit women into this thing that wasn't built for them. So I think scientists are very much recognizing that, oh, this is the way things have always been and it needs to change. Right. And I always say that I don't think it's I really hope not, but I don't think that it's like any one institution or, you know, scientists or anything being malicious, right? And saying, we don't want to study women. Um, but it is just how the system was established in the beginning and how that's just became like the gold standard. And so that's just how, you, that's how you do science, right? Like that's, that's what my teacher taught me. Or that's what my professor taught me. That's what his professor taught him. Um, so we just, keep perpetuating those same practices going forward. Can you give me examples of what kind of studies that you may be talking about specifically? Yeah. So I think an example might be, you know, if we think of concussion, right? So a lot of concussion studies have been done with male athletes in sports like football and hockey and boxing, because that's where we would often see those concussions, right? Like those are kind of the obvious choices if you were to study this. And so we've done a lot of studies on concussion. And so we have a pretty good understanding of what symptoms might look like, right? Like uh, how that might manifest, what recovery outcomes might be, uh, what recovery protocols might be. But again, that's based on men primarily. So when we look at women, you know, when, when researchers start to then look at like say like injury prevalence between men and women, they're like, oh, women seem to be more having more concussions than men, or women might be, their outcomes are worse than men, right? In the sense that their symptoms last longer, they're taking longer to return to sport. So one of the, you know, kind of hypotheses is that, well, maybe we're not recognizing the symptoms of concussion in women because maybe they're different than they are in men. And so one, if there is training staff or medical staff on the field which of a, of a woman's game, which is a question in and of itself, right? Like, are they allocating resources to that? But are they recognizing those symptoms or are they just kind of looking at, you know, these athletes and be like, oh, that doesn't match up, right, with what I learned in school. 
And so you're fine. Go back out on the field, right? So are we missing some people in that early phase? And therefore, that affects how quickly they can get to care. And that interval of time between when you're diagnosed and when you access care is really important. Like the sooner you can get to care can have a significant effect on how on your recovery outcomes. So that's just one example. Not to dive too far down that specific rabbit hole, but I have I have long-term concussion symptoms about five and a half years. Mm. And I, I sometimes think I did get physio pretty soon after. I was just uh, first and only time downhill skiing. And I still have like vestibular issues now. And I think and I think about, you know, if it was done differently in those first few months, because that's when it's mo- like you just said, when it's most important is when, in the first few weeks or few months. I just wonder if I would be a little bit more functional. <laughs> today. Well, no, but the, it's a legitimate question. And I do actually think that women have tend to have more vestibular issues compared to men as a result of concussion. Thank you for confirming that for me. Because that, you know, like it is a big issue and it, you know, and I think it's something we just overlook. I mean, we've also seen it, right, in just healthcare in general, when you think about, say, like heart attack symptoms. You know, we've heard a lot about like how women have different heart attack symptoms than men, and that might lead to underdiagnosis or late diagnosis, right? That could be a life or death issue. I do want to talk about our menstrual cycles and how they affect performance because I've looked at I, I've looked into the, into this a little bit, but I was also reading one of your articles about I believe it was runners who performed better depending where they were in their cycles. I don't know much about this whatsoever, but and I think we could probably talk about this for hours. But our hormones fluctuate wildly all the time and throughout our lives. So could you? paint maybe a general understanding of our menstrual cycles and how they affect performance? Yeah. So, I mean, we often think about menstrual cycles just in terms of fertility, right? Like when you might be ovulating, when you might, you know, be able to get pregnant. But what I don't think a lot of us appreciate as much is the fact that those hormones also have other jobs in the body, right? Like, So they, you know, estrogen and progesterone can affect everything from like metabolism to bone health, to muscle mass, to cardiovascular health, like temperature regulation, all of these different things that could potentially affect how your body feels during exercise um, and how it adapts, right? So it makes sense that researchers are now kind of looking more into this relationship between like, does you know, being in a high hormone phase affect your ability to train or perform? Like, is it better or is it worse versus being in a low hormone phase? And so I think what's interesting about this is, A, we're starting to pay attention to our our hormones, right? And recognizing it and expanding the scope. But I think, let's see how I would say this, I think in some ways we might also be getting ahead of ourselves, right? Because some of these studies might show a relationship, right? Between say, like if you're in a low, lower hormone phase, you might not feel so sluggish, right? Or fatigued. If estrogen's high, you might be able to gain muscle mass better or things like that. But we don't know to what extent that happens. Because we have, because they haven't studied women enough? Well, we haven't studied it enough, right? We're just start. That's the thing. It's like, we're just starting to ask these questions and just starting to understand what that means within a human body too, right? Like, because because the scientific studies will start in like cells and like 
in the lab, right, in a Petri dish, basically, trying to understand how some of these relationships might work, but then you have to study it in an actual human person. And the tricky part is, is that everyone's individual hormone profile is going to be different, right? Even if you're the same age, even if you're on the same day of your cycle, like the levels of your hormone are going to be different, as well as how sensitive you are to those fluctuations in hormones. So like, I might not notice any difference, right? Like I might just feel pretty much the same all days of my cycle versus you might feel, you know, might be more affected, right? Like if if your hormones are going up, you might feel a certain way. If your hormones are going down, you, you'll feel a different way, right? So everyone's individual experience of it might be different. So that's why it makes it tricky to come up with, say, like a prescription or like a blueprint that will work for everyone, which I feel like is what some people are trying to do because they see all of this interest and hunger for information, which is total, I totally get. And, you know, I want to know too. And we want to kind of, as humans too, want to know what the quick fix is, like what's going to get me to like a PR or something. And like, I get that, but you know, it, it is a little bit more nuanced and complicated than that. Of course. I, uh, again, I don't want to tout this as, as any kind of medical advice. I am not a doctor. I am not a, even a journalist. Neither. I <laughs> learn and observe information. But uh, going even going back to your injuries, and I've heard this from, you know, personal trainers. I've heard this even from like my, you know, sports med doctors. I've heard about women more likely hurting themselves during during certain parts of their cycle as well, like going back to your injuries. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it makes sense in the way that doctors and scientists are trying to figure this out, right? Because they notice that, you know, women, you know, are like two to eight times more likely to suffer a traumatic knee injury, like an ACL tear. And so, of course, like you want to know why, because then if you can figure out the factors that are causing this, you can hopefully, right, like prevent it. And so, of course, they're going to start looking at like the internal factors in a body or if women are getting more injured than men, they'll look at the differences between men and women because like if men are not as injury prone, they're quote unquote more durable or resilient, if you will. Like what's different about women that makes us more likely to get injured? So yeah, so hormones is one thing that has come up, which makes sense because there are receptors for estrogen on our ligaments and on our tendons. So the theory is, is that if estrogen surges, like it does around ovulation, it shows that it does make the ligaments in the knee a little bit more lax, but it's unclear, like, is that enough, right, to make you then prone to injury. And it also goes back to that question we were talking about before. It's like, okay, so my knee is more lax then, but like, I can't do anything about it, right? Like there's nothing to do about this. So, you know, it's like they start to hone in on like some of those specific factors, but there are more researchers and people kind of asking the question that like, okay, that's one thing, but what else what else could be influencing this, right? And are encouraging, you know, science to really step back and look at the bigger picture of, you know, things like, well, are girls and women encouraged to strength train, right? Because we say like muscle mass or like having more muscle mass could potentially prevent injury. And so men and boys naturally tend to have more muscle mass, 
but they're also encouraged to go to the gym, right, and lift weights. And culturally, for a long time, girls and women haven't been. It's starting to change. But, you know, still, it's that question of, like, are you encouraging girls and women to do these things that could potentially increase their um, or help them prevent injury? And similarly, you know, if we think about things like how we encourage kids to move, like it's, you know, it's it's like the cliche thing of, like, boys are encouraged to, like, jump off like tall things and like wrestle and do all of these things, but girls aren't right. Like it's not ladylike or whatever, but because we don't encourage that boys have all this experience of learning how to land and control their bodies at a pretty early age, whereas girls might not have that same experience. Right. So it is like, yes, there are those anatomical hormonal factors that could potentially play a role but I don't think that that's the only thing that's playing a role in these injuries. I have to say, as we talk about this and talk about females and hormones, I have to say the most impressive people in my life in, in sport are postmenopausal women who are absolutely kicking butt. And I'm hoping that well into like my 60s and 70s, I'm able to perform as well as they do. Absolutely. Well, and also just because like we write off older people, right? And especially older women, like you're just kind of expected to go slink off somewhere, right? As you get older and because you're not relevant anymore to society, like your athletic prime is behind you. So just go and, you know, knit or whatever it is, right? But yes, it is. But these like older women who are out there doing these amazing things are so incredible, right? Because they're like, no, like, this I still love doing what I you know I've always done my life. I still love being active and I still want to be active. So who are you to say that I can't? And if I still want to knit, that's fine yes, too. Want exactly. to go bird watching? That's totally cool. To switch gears a little bit, what have you learned in your research about equality for women in sports, like prize money, salaries, mat leave, even you know, women's sports being shown on TV? I think there's this, I don't know if you know about this, but there's like this bar. I don't know where it is, but it only shows women's sports. Yeah. So this bar, it's called the Sports Bra, I believe. It's in based in Portland. It opened like less than a year ago, I think. And it's already made like a lot of money or like it's proven that it's very successful and that there's a demand for this. And it's like phenomenal. So yeah, the whole bar is dedicated to women's sports. That's all you can watch on TV. That's all like the paraphernalia and like, you know, the memorabilia that you see around the bar itself. And it's phenomenal, right? Like it's like clearly people want to watch women's sports because I think the the statistic is like somewhere between like four and 5% of sports media cover or media coverage is on women's sports, which is minuscule, right? And mm-hmm. yeah. And the argument There's always time. is, is like, well, no one wants to watch women's sports or like, it doesn't make money. Yeah. It doesn't you know? make money. Yeah. Or like, you know, that's why <laughs> the, you know, U.S. women's <laughs> national team shouldn't be paid more because like they don't make as much money. No one's watching them. Like they're, even though they're outperforming the men, no big, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Or like their their revenue potential. But like the thing is, is like you're making it impossible for people to actually find the sports that you're watching, right? It's like you just turn on the TV, you know, on any weekend or whatever, right? And it's like there's 60 million men's sports options to watch, right? 
but like you have to be so like dedicated or you know like to figure out like how can I watch this NWSL game right is it streaming on this is it on or this other platform because they always switch what time is it at and so we make it hard for people to actually find the sports to watch and if we're we're doing that right we're just setting up all these barriers in the way of women's sports actually reaching its full potential right it's like we're it's almost like we're purposefully doing that right and so yeah there's absolutely like all these you know inequities between men and women in terms of compensation sponsorship dollars there are only like very few women athletes that have you know kind of risen to the top so like the Serena Williams and the Naomi Osaka's who are you know making a lot of money there's actually a great book that's coming out at the end of June it's called money power respect um, and it's written by uh, also a journalist, Michaela McKenzie. And it talks all about how women's sports is kind of this this new edge of like leading the fight for equality and equity, you know, writ large, right? And how it's kind of this microcosm of what's happening in the world in general. But yeah, there's absolutely all these disparities. I mean, maternity leave really wasn't even an option until... I think it was 2019, there was a big like New York Times op-ed that came out by a track and field athlete, Alicia Montano, who talked very openly about the disparities in her contracts and how these athletes were often, their pay was suspended, you know, after they had a child, it was treated like this injury clause. So like, because they weren't competing, they weren't being paid, even though like they need time, like physically need time to recover and to get back into shape. Um, but it didn't recognize all that. But it's really only since then that, you know, there have been maternity clauses added to these some of these athlete contracts that we've started talking more about, like the need for maternity protections, uh, for childcare support for these athletes. Um, because otherwise, again, you're you're like cutting them off in their prime and not even giving them the opportunity to continue to compete, to continue to do the amazing things that they do. Speaking of Serena Williams, I wish I had the confidence of a man, a mediocre man on Twitter. You know exactly what I'm going to say right now, don't you? Of a mediocre <laughs> man on Twitter who said, I could beat Serena at tennis. You know, you know exactly what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah, it's, it. I mean... It amazes me, right? Like the audacity sometimes of of these. I'm like, really? Like, okay, sure. Like, I'd really enjoy watching that, actually. Uh, up to speed, out now. Is there anything else you'd like to share about the book? I'm definitely cannot wait to read it. But is there anything else you'd like to share about the book? I don't want to call it your child, but you know, your your love <laughs> kind of is. <laughs> yeah, your book child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just excited for it to get in the hands of readers. You know, it covers. A whole lot of topics, you know, from like menstrual cycle to breast health to pelvic floor health, and then, you know, kind of three major life transition stages. So, like adolescence, pregnancy, postpartum, and the menopause transition. And, like, my hope really is, is that. I don't know, for, you know, for, for adult women and older, right? Like that it helps validate some of these experiences that we may have had in sport. It gives us a little bit more information to empower us to make better decisions or make different decisions for ourselves, right? And whatever that's appropriate so that it can help support you in staying active and being active in sport. For younger girls and women, I really do hope that it just 
again, by giving this knowledge to them at an earlier age, sets a foundation to for long-term athlete health and development so that they can be active their entire lives in a good, healthy way. Christine Yu, thank you so much for putting so much energy into this topic and really looking forward to reading up to speed. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more Let's Take This Outside, go to letstakethisoutside.ca. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.